So remember, everything moves on helical angles. So, so the elbow joint moves on a helical angle. So triceps is a twister. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Coming off a solid weekend. Um, digging right into the week. Uh, quick housekeeping. IFES University members, we have a Q&A at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today. 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today. If you're not a member of IFES University, you can go to ifsuniversity.com. Get yourself signed up so you can participate in today's Q&A. Okay. Um, so I had like this perfect storm of uh, Q&As coming through. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. And then had an incident um, not an incident per se, but but something happened that kind of pointed us in a direction that we're going to apparently talk about elbows this morning. Um, so two questions in the Q&A were about elbows. And then I did a parking lot diagnosis on the way out of the office last week um, with one of our pitchers. Um, and then uh, had Eric work a little bit of his juju in the gym. And we got a great report on our pitcher that uh, for the first time in three to four starts, he had no elbow pain. So this is kind of cool. So like I said, everything's just kind of pointing towards this elbow thing. I thought I would uh, sort of do this from the perspective of let's look at some common errors that people make generally. And then I'm going to show you a video, I think from December, where we talked about some, some lateral elbow pain. I think one of the more common things is looking at elbows differently as if they're something special or unique, and they are not. Um, they have the, the, the same representations that the rest of your body has. Um, so when we look at these things, let's have the perspective that, that they're no different. We have to start with an archetype representation because that's going to give us our initial starting conditions. Always remember that. And so if I have a wide ISA, I have somebody that's biased towards an IR representation. If I have somebody that's a narrow ISA, I have somebody that's biased towards an ER representation. So regardless of what I determine at the elbow, I have to understand where this person came from because that's going to determine my initial interventions to restore relative motions as needed proximally first before I try to go after this, this elbow thing. Um, so I have to understand, do I have a relative motion issue at the shoulder? Do I have an orientation issue at this shoulder first and foremost? Then as you slide down to the elbow and you start to look at the elbow, we want to look at elbow range of, range of motion. Um, let's get concepts of, of hyperextension and valgus out of our heads. They don't exist. Those, those planes are imaginary. Um, they are for discussion purposes only. They are not representations of movement. Elbow moves on helical angles just like everything else does. So what you're looking at are twists. So we need to be able to identify those twists. So don't look at these things as straight plane representations. One of the simplest tests that you're, you can do is, is clean elbow flexion extension. And, and we have to understand what those representations look like. And in the video that I'm going to show you, there's a little bit of a representation as to how this flexion limitation represents itself and then what to do with that. Um, don't forget, hand position is just as important to help us determine this, this elbow representation. So I got my little apple test and I got my, my pistol test to help me determine where my hand position is relative to this distal forearm. Because if I can identify that, then I get a lot more information about what's going on in the elbow. And I know how to position my hand, whether I need to use a supinated ER hand or do I need a pronated IR hand um, to help me re restore my ability to capture relative motions at the elbow. Um, also remember, range of motion is systemic. 
Okay, it's not in, in isolation. Nothing happens in isolation. So I have checks and balances throughout the system. So I have ipsilateral hip to help me determine my, my shoulder representation. I have um, orientations of the pelvis that are gonna help me determine what the orientation of the thorax will be. So don't ignore those things. Remember, range of motion is systemic. So hopefully that guides you a little bit in regards to some of the things that, that, that people um, make mistakes with when it comes to elbows. Um, if you have a question or want to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we will set that up at our mutual convenience. I'll see you guys at the uh, IFAS University uh, members Q&A this afternoon. Everybody have an outstanding Monday, and here's a little video about lateral elbow pain. And it is from Jared2Rs10. Jared says, hi, Bill. Hi, Jared. Uh, thanks for all the information you post. Most welcome. Um, I saw the video you posted about wrist positions and was wondering if you have any solutions for something like tennis elbow. It seems like elbow position would be something to be concerned about asking for a friend. Well, Jared, let's see if we can help your friend a little bit. Um, the first thing that we want to we ask, um, we're talking about lateral elbow pain. So that unfortunately it gets branded as, as tennis elbow for some reason. Not really sure where that came from, other than the fact that tennis players do experience this. Um, but anybody can, um, you'll see it in the weight room quite a bit as well. But ultimately what we're dealing with is a situation where we have too much pressure or tension in one place, and then that's gonna result in, in a pain experience. So it is an elbow result. It's typically not an elbow problem, although you can identify changes there that, that um, sort of take the blame a lot of times for, for why we do have pain. But we wanna think about orientation of the elbow um, as as a possible um, influencer and then as also as a possible solution. So we think like, okay, shoulder bones connected to the arm bone, arm bones connected to the elbow bone kind of a thing, but all of that is attached to the axial skeleton as well. And so we wanna make sure that we have full adaptability through the axial skeleton, then we have full adaptability at the shoulder, elbow, hand, wrist, etc. And so if we don't have that full adaptability proximally, then we're gonna to have to create some sort of compensatory strategy distally. Now, let's talk about this, this elbow a little bit, a little bit more specifically um, as far as why we might see this, this lateral elbow situation. So if we think about any activity, any activity that's gonna drive shoulder external rotation and elbow extension at the same time. So I think one of the reasons why we can brand this as a tennis elbow thing is because if you're hitting a backhand, I need a pretty strong elbow extension and I'm driving shoulder external rotation at the same time. Now, a little thing to remember about triceps. So triceps um, is branded as this elbow extender, which it is technically speaking, but it's a twister. So remember, everything moves on helical angles. So, so the elbow joint moves on a helical angle. So triceps is a twister. So the cool thing about triceps is that it can actually assist with that shoulder external rotation. So if I'm driving anything with a strong shoulder external rotation and elbow extension at the same time, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get a medial uh, posterior medial compressive strategy above the elbow. So think about all the fibers uh, that, that are medial um, to, that, to the line of the humerus, that would be triceps compressing um, that space. Now, if that happens, that creates external rotation in the shoulder, which is really, really nice and handy. But, but the big problem that we end up with is that we um, have a, a situation where the lateral 
aspect of triceps is now eccentrically oriented. So if we looked at the elbow capsule, we get a compression on that, that posterior medial aspect of the capsule. We'll get an expansion on the posterior lateral aspect. And now I don't have a really good elbow extension mechanism um, like I normally would if both aspects of the triceps were intact. And so now I have a substitution problem. So anything that can potentially extend the elbow is gonna to try to help along. So now I got Anconius, a tiny little thing that's gonna to try to extend the elbow. Supineer is gonna to try to extend the elbow. Anything that's attached to the common extensor tendon is gonna to try to extend the elbow. And so now I have muscles that were not well designed to produce this force, trying to produce this force. And so I get a lot of pressure and tension at the lateral elbow. And so um, what I wanna do is I wanna show you a way to test this um, which is kind of counterintuitive. We're actually gonna use elbow flexion as, as our assessment. Because if you think about, if I create a, a, uh, a posterior medial compression on the, the inside of the elbow, I'm also gonna then have a resultant expansion on the anterior medial aspect of the elbow. And so what happens is, as I try to flex the elbow, because of the, the medial aspect being full of fluid, I can't compress there. So as I, as I flex my elbow to end range, I'm gonna do it in a slightly pronated position. So the test that I'm looking for here is supinated elbow flexion with full compression at end range. And so I took Eric into the purple room because I, I kind of figured that, that he would have a little bit of a deficit that we could actually show you in real time. So we'll, sh we'll show you the change. So the first thing I did is I, I put him up on the table there and we flexed the elbow fully in a supinated position. You can kind of see where the end range stops. But then I took him out of supination. I put him in a little bit of pronation. You can see I can compress the elbow more fully. Now we're gonna go over to the left side as a comparison. And right away we see that we do have this fully, fully compressible supinated elbow flexion as, as our comparison. So basically um, Eric is showing us this, this elbow orientation that we're talking about. So here's the fix, if you will. What we're gonna do is we're gonna drive external rotation through the entire system on that, that right side. So we're gonna start, we're gonna do a, a dumbbell curl. We're gonna cheat the hand over to the inside edge of the dumbbell. That's gonna promote supination right away. Now Eric is pressing his thumb on, onto the inside of that dumbbell. And so that is ER of the hand. So we're driving external rotation from the hand up. Then if you look at this body orientation, we have the, the thorax, the shoulder, the humerus, and everything is ER'd as he does this, this dumbbell curl. And so it's really, really simple. We're just driving external rotation through the entire system. And what we're gonna get is we're gonna get a, a reduction of that concentric orientation of the medial aspect of triceps. We're gonna, we're gonna restore the orientation of the elbow. And now when we put Eric back up on the table and we check our supinated elbow flexion, now we get this fully compressed look. And so again, it's just a matter of understanding the orientation at the elbow. And now what we should have then is a normal extensor mechanism on the backside of that elbow. So we don't have to substitute with our tiny little muscles like Anconia, supinator, and, and the uh, common extensor compartment. And so hopefully, Jared, that gives you an idea of what you're looking at with this lateral elbow stuff and provides you a little bit of a solution. Keep in mind, it is a solution, it's not the solution. There are other things that can be going on, but this is a really, really common one. So, so I hope it's useful. I take my conical shape and I push it flat and now the loop that, that the shoulder girdle represents is bigger 
it's bigger in circumference than than the 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 cone that they used to rest on so it slides down good morning happy tuesday i have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect okay kind of a busy tuesday um so we're gonna dig right into today's q a um it's kind of a two for two for tuesday um, i'm gonna show two two segments um, the first segment is actually from last week's uh, Coffee and Coaches Conference call. We got to talking about the depressed scapula representation, um, what it means, how it arises, um, what are the influences, how does this influence other activities. And I made reference to a video that I did, I can't remember, um, sometime last year in regards to this and we provided some solutions there so we're going to we're going to break it down in the first segment talk about it a little bit and then um, move into the solutions segment as well so i think you'll find this useful if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation with yours truly go to askbillhartman at gmail.com askbillhartman at gmail.com put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so we don't delete it and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you tomorrow. Uh, hey, Bill, I have another shoulder question. <laughs> um, so in uh, IFAST University, you know, we were talking about protraction and retraction. Yes, sir. Well, you know, it, it, if you protract or retract, it creates that elevation. Yes, sir. Your shoulder. Yes, sir. Um, and then uh, John asked a question in the forum about, so what happens when you have like depression, like you're yeah. sort of hanging down? Yeah. Um, and I, and I watched the video that you posted, and yeah. you said it's 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 lower. It's so it's, lower compression that causes that. No. Or, no. 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 Okay. I misunderstood right. it, so I wanted to the see momentum. the momentum. Okay. okay. All right. So here's the picture that I that I, that I want you to to make in your head, right? You're gonna make a loop starting at your manubrium, clavicle, acromion, scapula, dorsal rostral, scapula, acromion, clavicle. So there's a, there's a, like a, it's a cross section of an icosahedron is actually what it is on top of your thorax, right? That's your shoulder girdle. It rests on top of the axial skeleton. You got it? So it's a loop that sits on top. Yeah. The thing that holds that up, okay, is its circumference resting on whatever shape the rib cage is underneath. Okay? You yeah. follow me so far? Mm -hmm. Okay. As long as the rib cage is conical, okay, so it's shaped like a cone, the, the shoulder girdle will only fall down so far. If I squeeze, if I squeeze the hoop tighter, it goes up the cone. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. But what if I squeeze the cone flat and it's no longer conical? It's just like really, really smushed front to back. And I got this loop that sits on it and the loop goes, whoomp, it falls down because there's nothing to hold it up anymore. Okay. When you when you elevate, aren't you already squeezing from front to back? And that's what Yes, but keep squeezing. Like squeeze, squeeze, no, no. Squeeze all the air out of the thorax, like all of it. Lower, 
So this is so this is an end game representation under most circumstances, right? Yeah. So I am compressed eight. <laughs> Jen just had a light bulb moment. So this is compression all day, every day, everywhere. So I take my conical shape and I push it flat, and now the loop that that the shoulder girdle represents is bigger. It's bigger in circumference than than the 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 cone that they used to rest on. So it slides down. Okay. But it's got attachments right here at the SC joint. So this is this is like every SC joint problem known to man is, is either going to be um, a, a extreme depressed or an extreme elevated position. Okay, because um, you get you get pressure here under both circumstances. Um, but but the shoulders drop because there's nothing. There's literally nothing to hold it up, short of continuous muscle activity, which is really hard to do. Um, and, and you pay the price for that because you end up with like suboccipital headaches. You end up with like really like upper cervical stuff. Um, these are the people that, you know, they, they, they learn too much anatomy on the internet and they go, yeah, my elevator scapula is tight, stuff like that. Right. Um, and, and it's, and it almost looks like the, like the acromion are sitting lower than the SC joint when you look at them from the front and then they've got the um, Shirley Simon would call it like downward scapula syndrome or downward something syndrome. Right. Um, but that's typically what's going on. So, so they, you, you get the, the protraction retraction element of it where you're trying to elevate, but literally it's like at some point in time, if they keep compressing, they don't have, they, they don't have the air, um, underneath the shoulder girdle to hold it up at all. So some people will still walk in with this kind of a representation because they can they can maintain the muscle activity. Some people just can't do it. They don't have enough pressure to, to hold the position. That's why everybody doesn't have depressed shoulders and some people have elevated and some people don't. So the mechanics just allow it to, to one of the, uh, the other to maintain. And Manuel, you're gonna run into this a lot just because of the degree of pulling that you do with your Olympic lifters. Well, I see it. I see it a lot with uh, front squatting as well. Like if they don't have a good rack position, they're they're always hanging out like this, trying to get ready. To right, see. right. So the solution is is the solution is not to say, "Hey, put your shoulders down." The solution is create the AP expansion, mm -hmm. and you don't have to tell them to put their shoulders down because they don't have a choice right now, right? And, and so, so yeah, you can drive the AP so that shoulder girdle has a place to rest on. Then they have a rack position, right? Because think about this. What do you rest in the, uh, in a front squat? What do you rest in the barbell on? Um, the clavicle, and then it's, it's over the groove of your deltoid. It's on, it's on bone. What's it actually resting on, Manuel? You, you're stacking weight on a column of air, mm. right? If that air is the wrong shape, all right? So wrong shape. How many people are great front squatters with a vertical sternum? No. They drop the weight forward, right? Their elbows drop, they can't hold the weight up. They got a lousy rack position. They have to try to elevate their scaps using muscles. It's not gonna go well. Yeah, you need it. You need it up. So exactly. So I have to have I have to have the AP expansion to create the right shape underneath the load. 
right? So if I can rest the bar on a column of compressed air that will not compress further, now I am super strong because I don't have to try to use all this muscle activity to hold the weight up and try to lift it at the same time. But the way the way you'll see this, or you'll even feel it yourself, just take a front, just take a, a reasonably heavy front squat weight, and then take it to your max effort, like to the last possible rep, and then you'll see how hard it is to hold your sternum up, right? Because the weight is is going to win eventually, and then that's when you start to dump the weight forward because you can no longer maintain the the position to hold the column of air in the right place. So we're always we're always creating this, this column of fluid underneath the load under every circumstance, whether you're talking about an overhead press or a front squat or a back squat or whatever. That's why the shape is so important as far as the execution is concerned, because it's, number one, it's going to hold the weight up. Number two, it's going to allow you to access positions that you might need to actually squat or bend or whatever you're going to do. Hmm. So, so, so you said it's an end game strategy. So that's, I guess, it's, they're very compressed. They're very, did you see the picture they put in that video? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that was, pre that was pretty, there is a, just FYI for anybody that's, that's concerned with the depressed shoulder thing. There's a video on my YouTube channel. Just just go to the search and put in depressed. And this comes from Greg. And Greg has a question about shoulder girdle depression. In this case, uh, Greg says the impairment is a lack of elevation with arm elevation and at rest. So he's talking about like a depressed shoulder girdle that is, that is resting a little bit lower uh, than we would perceive as normal. He says, I've seen this presentation most in my narrow ISA individuals, including my weightlifters and ballerinas. Um, while I could see the utility of achieving an adequate amount of scapular elevation while reaching overhead, I also appreciate that this will compress the dorsal rostral thorax. So, Greg, you're, you're, you're on point with that, with that perspective. So far, so good. I can also appreciate that under some circumstances, it may be useful to compress the dorsal rostral thorax during this phase of arm elevation. However, in my narrows, who show deficits of external rotation, internal rotation, and lower cervical rotation, so it's a lot of compressive strategy, Greg, I can see how this would be in conflict with the restoration of movement. One of the common recommendations is passive elevation of the shoulder girdle at rest and then active maintenance. Although this might reduce the depressive aspect, it could also be considered promoting an additional layer of superficial compress compressive strategy. And so he's talking about, about raising the arm to about 120 degrees and then working on like a, sh like a shrugging motion. So do you have any thoughts um, as to when or if this strategy might be useful? Okay, Greg, I do have some thoughts on this. The first thing that we wanna do is we wanna identify what we're really looking at. So. The, the, uh, the person that, that you, you mentioned in your email, well, I left their name out, um, d describes this, this depressed shoulder girl in a very, very specific way in regards to certain types of muscle activity. So they use, a, they use terminology of shortness and length and, and relative flexibilities and things like that. And so they describe this as having um, shortness of, of pec pectoralis major and minor, shortness of the lats, shortness of supraspinatus, which I really love. That's a, it's a great observation um, um, by, by this person because I think that, that the concentric orientation of, of the supraspinatus in, in this circumstance is one of the reasons why you see so much supraspinatus tendinopathy. Um, the concentric orientation reduces blood flow to that, that supraspinatus tendon and we get degeneration there. 
so that's that's kind of a big deal but if you look at all this all this compressive strategy essentially what we're looking at is is your your end game narrow presentation which is hopefully based on my technology i should be able to present present you with that right there okay so this is kind of what we're looking at so if you squeezed all the air out of out of the thorax um, essentially there's nothing to elevate the the shoulder girdle and so that's why you're going to start to see this this depressed appearance where the the lateral aspect of the clavicle may actually look like it's resting lower than the medial aspect you're going to look like you have these really really stretched out upper trapezius and they they are not relaxed under any circumstance and so so we do have this this upper dorsal rostral compression so i think you're dead on that that if we were to try to 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 influence this with one i have to move my arm into a position where i probably have to utilize a compensatory strategy to even get there and number two i'm going to use muscle activity that's going to further compress this area i i i think that maybe over time if you're really diligent you might get some change and we'll talk about that here in just a second but i think that you're just driving people deeper and deeper into a compressive strategy because what you're going to end up doing is you're going to end up compressing our little camperini angle right here between the clavicle and the scapula so that's going to get narrower and narrower and and so then we just get this well it might look like you're starting to elevate the uh the scapula and reducing the depressed look if you will you're also going to create a lot of compression in that in that upper dr and so now we've just sacrificed all your lower cervical rotation you're not going to hit your end range flexion you're going to use a compensatory strategy there and so again i don't like to go there um, first because i think it's just a, a it's a much harder road uh, to follow um, one of the things that a lot of people tend to jump to too soon under this circumstance is they try to do some form of inverted activity. This also requires that I have the, the requisite shoulder elevation or, or, or flexion, if you will, to get into that position. And oftentimes I have too much of a compressive strategy in, in the dorsal rostral, dorsal rostral area or upper part of the thorax. And so that's why they, they tend to fail when they jump to this, this too soon. So what I would do, Greg, is I would probably start thinking about trying to get the, the posterior lower expansion first and so there's any number of ways that we can approach this um, sideline activities rolling patterns are a really nice place to start because we can take take advantage of this gravitational effect of, of the internal organs shifting around and, and, and actually allowing us to, to gain um, some of this this anterior expansion um, we also have some activities um, that emphasize the posterior expansion with the arms in, in this non-compensatory position uh, well below 90 degrees. You can find those on YouTube. Um, they, they're going to indicate like posterior lower expansion, dorsal rostral expansion, so, so check those out. Once we do those activities, we can usually pick up about 90 degrees of shoulder flexion, and now we've got a lot of stuff on the table. Now we can go, we can go quadruped, um, we can do band and cable reaching, and try to gain a little bit more of the, of the anterior expansion so we, so we can pick up the pump handle under those circumstances and maintain that posterior lower strategy because when we're working at that 90 degrees of, of, of shoulder elevation, we do have dorsal rostral concentric muscle activity. And so by creating a little bit of concentric orientation there, we, we, get, we promote expansion of the posterior lower and we're gonna drive airflow up and anterior to, to lift up that pump handle. So again, um, once we get 90 degrees of short flexion, we've got a lot of stuff on the table that we can, that we can use. 
once we can get them through this this middle range this ir dominant range of the shoulder we've got good pump handle we can get about 120 degrees of shoulder flexion now we can start to talk about the activities um, that, that you were mentioning before however i would i would um, caution against trying to use the, the shrugging activity again because all we're going to do is cr create a, a compressive strategy there. But this is where we would start to use some, some inverted positions because we have access to the, the non-compensatory shoulder flexion that's available to us. We've got deep squat, pull-down activities, we've got bar hang activities and things like that that, that we can utilize that are going to promote a lot of that, that remainder of the, of the anterior-posterior expansion. We're going to drive some of that end range um, uh, shoulder flexion so we're gonna get the upper DR expansion and and so I would use your your shoulder flexion measure and and go to the YouTube video and and um, check out how I measure shoulder flexion it's very very important that you measure it a very specific way so you know so you know that you're getting shoulder flexion and you're not getting a, a compensatory um, presentation at the end range of flexion so Greg thank you so much for the question bad exercise prescription because I blamed a structure that, that didn't deserve it. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. As usual, Wednesday, crunch day. Very pressed for time, but want to mention the fact that we do have a Coffee and Coaches conference call tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. These have been great calls. Got another segment from last week's call coming up. Uh, this morning because it was so good. Um, we were talking about uh, depressed scapula yesterday and so today we're going to talk about the winging concept that, that I think is totally misunderstood. Um, we're blaming the wrong thing. It's sort of like blaming uh, the patella for a tracking problem in the knee um, when it comes to the winging scapula. It's a, it's a thorax issue and we'll explain that in the video and then um, there's a little segment from an IT and Y video that I did Woo, in 2019, I think, um, that I'm going to throw in there too, um, where I'm making the commentary about, about sort of blaming sort of the wrong concept. We're, we're looking at the scapula because it seems prominent, but it is not the cause of these situations, and therefore it ends up promoting an ineffective exercise prescription. So I think it will be helpful for a lot of people. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line. We'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. Have a great day. I'm good. Yeah, I, uh, I've got a bit of a question relating to SCAPS, just because we were chatting about it there before. Sure. Um, a couple of years back, I had a pec reattachment after doing something stupid on a bench press. And uh, as a consequence of that, since then, I've noticed that uh, I've, my left scap is wing, if you want to call it that, um, a little more than my right uh, right scap. And I've been told by some other physios that, uh, you know, it's a weak serratus and, and I, I need to do some work there in order to try and bring it back um down a little bit uh it's um really notice that on heavy eccentric lowering so if i'm doing like a, a military press or something of that nature and lowering some decent weight that's where it comes into a vacancy if you like below the scap as you're going through that that range of motion just prior to bringing it back to the chest level 
Um, what's your thoughts on on that? I, I don't know that I buy the weak serratus being the solution to the problem. Um, I I would agree, um, but what you what you don't have is anything for that scap to to compress against when you need the, the so you have to compress the scapula against the posterior rib cage when you're lifting heavy things, right? That's an IR representation. So you gotta, you gotta push the scap against the thorax, but the thorax keeps getting away from the scapula. So, so the, the mistake that people make is that they, they call it a winging scapula instead of a compressed thorax. And, and so then the strategy becomes the wrong strategy. It's like blaming the patella for a tracking problem when the patella is an idiot and it's just the train on a track. So uh, trains don't think, they, they follow the track, right? So patellas follow the track. Scapula have to have a thorax so they know where to go um, in space. And so you can have a strong serratus anterior or whatever you wanna call it. Um, because again, if there's no place for the scapula to rest, there's nothing for the, for the musculature to pull against. So you need to create left dorsal rostral expansion and move the rib cage back to the scapula. It's, it's not a, it's not a winging scapula. Yeah. Right? It's, it's a, yeah. it's a, that, it's a, that makes sense actually. Yeah. Well that, but that, but see that, but that is, that that is the solution is like, you've got a thorax, you've got a thorax that's IRing, right? It's compressed moving forward and you got to bring it back. That, that actually, uh, and I don't know whether there's any, you know, physical uh, validity to this, but certainly the sensation that you get that there's something missing under the scapula when you get it down to that position where you're almost returning the bar to your shoulders and you end up in that position where there's just like a vacancy there. There's nothing to, there's nothing to support it. Right. Right. No, that's, that's very helpful. Thanks, Bill. You're welcome. Hey, hey, Matt, do a, do a quick yeah. test. Next time you're in the gym, um, do backwards crawling or backwards bear crawls. Okay. And then and hey, Frederick's, Frederick knows where I'm going here. I, I can see his head shaking. B backwards crawling, backwards bear crawls, and then retest your, your overhead string. Oh, okay. Right, okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Good, cool. I was thinking about this the other day where you know, everyone kind of freaks out over like scapular winging, but a lot of times we're almost trying to recreate that in this room, but we're, we're calling it like scapular decompression. But it's not winging. How would you define a winged scapula? Though? I wouldn't. I okay. wouldn't. I, I just wouldn't define it that way. It's, it's probably blaming the wrong element of, of the movement system, right? It's like the scap is doing the best that it can under the circumstances. It's, you know, attached by 17 muscles and, and you're gonna try to achieve an outcome, right? With your hand or your extremity or whatever it might be. But if I have a, a, an exhalation strategy or a comp compressive strategy that, that doesn't allow the, the shape of the thorax and the scap to, to, to be mesh coherent with each other, then 
why are you blaming the scapula? Because then it redirects everything back towards the high MG activity and say, oh, you need more low trap strength or you need middle trap strength. So we need to do I's, T's, and Y's. When you're already compressed to begin with, that's what pushed this, the, this, the thorax flat, right? Instead of allowing it to be round so it actually meets the scapula the way it's supposed to be, right? right? And so now again, it's my fault, bad exercise prescription because I blamed a structure that didn't deserve it. Yeah, I made the whole call worth it right there. <laughs> it's like, that's like, it's like a 10 second sound bite. How could that, how could that make the call? <laughs> Gotta put it on Instagram. <laughs> we are on a roll here. I don't know. This might be, this might be top five call so far. Wow. Yeah. Honored to, honored to be on it. Oh. Let's not let's not weight this too heavily in the real world. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so my question is actually in regards, um, like the way that Cameron was phrasing his question, um, kind of a similar story, okay. um, but I'll give a specific example. So um, a lot of the the, the people I see um, who are you know if you know if this is this the spectrum of really compressed and like a little bit less compressed the people who are more toward the less compressed but still compressed side of the spectrum a lot of times i'll see the right shoulder uh you know lower and then a lot of times my more compressed people i'll actually see kind of like a reversal where the left shoulder will drop and it, it almost looks like they're getting kind of punched on the left side um i see more people i think with the right side bend than the left but um, I was wondering from like a sequence standpoint, kind of how you conceptualize that in terms of how you get from one to the other and, and potentially why that would be. Okay. Every time you see somebody get punched in the ribs, assume that that's an IR substitution strategy. Right. Okay. okay. So, yeah. So if I see somebody that's punched in the left rib cage, IR. If I see On both the hips. If I see somebody that's punched in the right rib cage, IR. Okay. Now, what if you see both? Oops. You got a lot of restriction at that point. That means you don't have IR on either side at the hip, right? You've got a substitution on both sides. So somebody had to move way forward to get forced down into the ground. So if you see it on both sides, that's somebody that's farther forward. You get it? Yeah. So if, if you see on one sided, you can assume that that side is getting pushed. That's the, that's the downforce. Understand internal rotation is down, right? It's pushing down. Okay. So the, the, let's just assume the left shoulder is lower and it kind of looks like both sides are smushed the left more so yeah um that would be the ir substitution at the hip and the shoulder or just at the hip? it's always at the it was always at both my friend always yeah. at both always at both okay yeah the 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 bigger the punch in the ribs the more you got to bring that side back Okay, now the because the reason that they're substitute sorry the reason that they're substituting with the IR is because they don't have any ER space. You got to create an ER space, and then they can start to superimpose the IR on top of it. If they're too far forward, they don't even have they they're they're closing the ER and they're using 
a different segment of the body to produce the downforce, to, to produce the IR. Right, and, and so that's why you'll see, like in the case of the, of the left uh, kind of smush, when those people, a lot of times I see go to hip shift instead of they actually- turn, They turn every, yes, you're not it's getting- It's just like, like kind of more of a hike. It's a pure orientation is what it is, Ben. You're not getting, you're not getting the, the expansive strategy to create a turn. So what they do is if, I'm, if I had a hold of their pelvis or their rib cage, the whole thing turns as a unit. They're not getting the, the segmental, they're not getting the expansive strategy or the yielding action that we just talked about um, with Jeremy. So they're not actually making a turn, they're just orienting in another direction. Right, so just to use that specific segment, would that yep. more so be like, you know, let's say in the case of the left, that the left is really, it's just way far forward, um, especially relative to the right, both sides being forward. You would want to clear something like lower posterior left first. Oh yeah. Before you, before oh, you yeah. pull them back on the left. Yes, key element, key element here, key element. In sequence, find the inside edge of the left heel, find the first metatarsal head second. Okay. Okay. Teach them to feel, so heel, toe, and then bring them back on that side. Right. If you don't do that, if you don't do that, they turn, they turn everything. Okay. Just an FYI, yeah. little, little trick. Roger. Okay. Okay. Yeah, thank you, makes sense. Zach Zoller, you agree with me? Yeah, that made the whole call worth it right there. <laughs> it's like, that's like, it's like a 10 second sound bite. How could that, how could that make the call? <laughs> Gotta put it on Instagram. <laughs> Patella poking straight forward where my arrow is. Do you see that? Yes. Yeah. So that's that's this is the this is the medial aspect of the patella right there. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Man, looking forward to a, a busy weekend, actually. Uh, we're inside a week for the intensive 13 people, so they're wrapping up their preparatory work um, for next week. And Intensive 14 has just started working on their stuff. Um, so very busy with that. Uh, digging into today's Q&A. This is another segment from yesterday's Coffee and Coaches Conference Call, which was really good and incredibly fun. A lot of laughter uh, went on yesterday, so we had a good time. Um, but this is from uh, Alex. And Alex had a question that built off of something that we were talking about on IFAST University um, in regards to some knee orientation representations. So I actually threw up a, a visual representation of some of the stuff that we talked about in regards to some of the orientation, especially at the knee where we have uh, femur going one way, tibia going the other way. So you actually get to see this um, a little bit. And so we kind of talked through that. I think it'll be useful for a lot of people to, to gain some understanding as to what can actually uh, potentially occur in some of these knee situations. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, uh, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Friday. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week.
in in the IFAS post, there was an IFAS post like five weeks ago where you're talking with George about <laughs> okay. um, uh, like knee mechanics and how you determine like twists of bones. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned was if you have uh, proximal tibial ER and then you have full knee flexion still, um, that's indicative of a distal IR twist um, because it's a concentric uh, vessel lateralis and eccentric VMO. Mm -hmm. And I can't really visualize it because to me, an a distal IR femoral twist puts you more towards screw home, which would make knee flexion still harder. It, exactly, so. it shouldn't. It shouldn't happen. That's 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 the issue, right? Because um, it it should put you in screw home. It should be a limit limiter of of the knee flexion. That, but when you get somebody that has like fully compressed heel to butt, it's like, okay, if you've got tibiofemoral ER and, and distal femoral IR, it's like, how are they doing it? And the, the reality is, is if I have eccentric orientation of the, of the, of the, the VMO, okay? Mm -hmm. So VMO, VMO attaches to the, from the patella to the, to the adductor, right? <clears throat> and that space, so that if that is eccentrically oriented, that means that, that the fluid volume that is inside the knee has a space to move into, which allows knee flexion to occur in uh, a tibiofemoral ER relative position. That shouldn't happen under, under ideal circumstances if we're talking about, about knee behavior. So how do you differentiate, because if you just have like a twist into proximal tibial ER that should also limit knee flexion. So how do you differentiate? Keep going. I feel like maybe I just, and so if you have proximal, the only way between just the situation of proximal tibial ER and proximal tibial ER plus distal femoral IR, only, only that one is going to give you full knee flexion because you have to have the eccentric orientation somewhere. Yeah, it's the, it's the so whenever you see mechanics like that, and, and you'll see it at the elbow, right? Yeah. Um, just like you would at the knee, it's like you should not have that range of motion available to you. You'll, the, the, the other thing that Alex, there's like, so you've got some visual contributions here. So when you take somebody into full knee flexion that shouldn't have it because of the, of the, the tibiofemoral twists, the patella is going to ride laterally big time because think about the pull that you're getting from uh, the, the distal VL is going to, is going to pull that, that patella right out off to that that uh, mm -hmm. edge of the trochlea, and have you ever seen the uh, the 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 downward X-rays that they do for knees, where they 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 put them in a little bit of knee flexion, and they do a superior to inferior view of the knee, so they can see where the patella is resting in the trochlea. Yeah. Okay. It'll be. You, yeah, you'll see it a mile away. That 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 the patella is resting way lateral, and it's got the big heavy tilt on it. Gotcha. And it's and all it's doing is it's just following where the where the train track goes, 
It's not the patella's fault. We got to stop blaming the patella for things because the patella is an idiot. Seriously, it doesn't, it doesn't make decisions. It's just following the track. Yeah, I mean, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, so I used to look from behind at someone's knee and, and use the, um, like the insertions of the hamstrings to determine uh -huh. whether or not there was just IR of the whole femur. Um, yeah, it works great. I, I posted what, a picture yesterday on that. Oh, did you? Not, not, oh, okay. not, probably not one that you can see, but I, I, I did post it somewhere. <laughs> I can bring it up. Hang on, I can bring it up. Um, so look at look at the anterior representation first, and look at the left leg. It's a little bit easier to see. On the, I mean, both are both are torqued, but but the left one is really strongly turned. Is it, see, you see the prominence of the of the medial femoral condyle in the left knee. Mm -hmm. That's what that is. That big bump on the inside of the knee is the, is the medial femoral condyle. And then if you look at the left leg in the middle, the middle representation, you can really see the musculature twisting around the femur. Do you see that? Yeah. I mean, that's so and it, 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 you, you talk about like the hamstring twist. Look at that. Look at the, the tension on the on the biceps femoris. And then I did a little bit of manual stuff just to show a little before and after. You can see that she's you, you start to get the the untwist. So you see all that muscular tension that was behind the knee is starting to disappear. And then her knees are starting to level out a little bit. Go back yeah. to the first, go back to the first the first representation anteriorly. You can even see the patella riding laterally. You see the the prominence of the patella poking straight forward where my arrow is. Do you see that? Yes. Yeah. So that's that's this is the this is the medial aspect of the patella right there. Look at all the all the concentric orientation you have. So so you can see it in both VLs, the concentric orientation. So you see this big dent right where the uh, the VL comes down and, and inserts into the, the quad tendon. You see all that muscle activity there, but but this is a pretty pretty cool twist. And you can see the difference in the two thighs um, quite a bit as far as how much turn you, you do have. You look at this proximal, just follow, follow rec fem. Um, it, it ends up pretty lateral on this uh, this left anterior thigh. So this is a this is a really good good example.